Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Our sermon comes from Ecclesiastes again today. If you'd open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. Who are your best friends? Do you have any really, really close friends? Picture your best friend in your mind for just a moment. Just to think about him or to think about her, why, it makes you comfortable inside and makes you want to smile because his presence, her presence is a ministry to you. Think about your very best friends. I've got a theory that friends are God's apology for family. What do you think about, <laughs> what do you think about that? Many of you know that God really does need to apologize in regard to your family, your relatives, doesn't he? You choose your friends, but you're, well, we're sort of stuck with our family, aren't we? Pavel Dimitra had an easy half million dollars staring him right in the face on the ice, but he passed the hockey puck. It was more than an empty net goal that the St. Louis Blues left wing passed up in the final seconds of that 3-2 win over the Los Angeles Kings. That goal would have given Demetra 90 points that would have engaged a half-million-dollar bonus into his contract paid out over the next two years. But, well, why? Why did he pass the puck? Why pass up a half-million dollars? Because his friend, winger Scott Young, was skating down the left, down the slot, and he had a $300,000 bonus on the line if he made the shot. You see, by passing, Pavel Dimitra would get his bonus, but he was also giving Scott Young an opportunity to get his bonus. So now we've moved up from a half million to $800,000 in bonuses. Well, with $800,000 on the line, Young fired a shot, but the King's defenseman Yaroslav Madri went down to block and sent the puck to the corner, and the final horn blew. No goal, no bonus for Demetra or Young. That's the, the most unselfish thing I have ever seen anybody do, said Blues defenseman Jamie Rivers. And he was talking about Demetra's pass to Young to give him a, a shot for both of them to make the bonus money. That's why he is the ultimate team player. If Young had scored this goal, it would have given him his 25th goal. A, a lower target for him would have triggered his bonus. I don't know what kind of angle he had, said Young, but if I put it in, we both hit. Demetra said, in fact, he had quite a good angle. When asked why in the world he passed up on the half-million-dollar shot, he said... My friend, Scott, needed a goal, too. Demetra was a true friend to Scott Young. Friends like that are as rare as four-leaf clovers. 
The very essence of friendship means that we put others ahead of ourselves, doesn't it? I want to read you a passage from 1 Samuel 18. It comes right after David has downed Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let David return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because, now the writer tells us twice, he wants you to get it. He loved David as he loved himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Gave David his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. David had just downed the giant Goliath and Saul had decided, Jonathan's father, he would not let David return to his family. And Jonathan begins that covenant relationship with his best friend, David. You remember that David, earlier in the story, the saga had tried on Saul's armor, but it did not fit. Saul was such a big man. It was a misfit, but somehow Jonathan's armor did fit. You see, Jonathan wouldn't let his best friend David wear a mere shepherd's robe anymore. Friend, put on my royal regalia. Jonathan is saying, Jonathan is treating David as if David is his own second self. He loved David even as he loved himself. He loved David the second time, he says, even as he loved himself. You have a friend for whom you'd take off your armor and hand over your sword? Have you had the privilege to discover that person or persons in your life that you love as you love your very self? Jonathan did. David did. Each of us comes in contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance, the people who the moment they lay their eyes on us are asking the question, what can we do for them? They look at us, they make a snap judgment, they slot us into one of their preconceived categories so they won't have to deal with us as real persons different than they had imagined. They treat us as something less than we are, and if we hang around them for a long time, we will become less than we could be. And even as everyone around us is treating us as someone to be used, she enters our life. He enters our life. Someone who isn't looking to use us to further their own life. 
with someone who is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on inside of us, is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, someone who recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions and confirms the deepest good within us. Do you have a friend like that? This week I did the funeral for Harvey Ann Club and she and our own Wanda Lee Fontaine I discovered in preparing for the funeral. I knew they had been long-term friends, but they were friends from before first grade. They had journeyed through life together, life's joys and their families and life's sorrows and their families. And when someone like that, when your David dies and your Jonathan you have lost a piece of yourself. Uh, in fact, Wanda Lee Fontaine said, we kept each other's life secrets all the way to the grave. Do you have a friend or friends like that, someone with whom your life fits together in puzzle form, you click together, you fit, you match, it works? While, while the rest of the world is deaf to your music, your friend not only recognizes, but also dances to your inner tune. Can you think of someone like that? Someone who really knows you and really loves you and really cares? Stephen Dites, playwright, says, what do we affect during our lifetime? What ultimately is each of our legacies? He says, I believe in most cases our legacy is the friends we leave behind. We write our history onto them, and they walk with us through our days like time capsules filled with our mutual past, the fragments of our hearts and our minds. That's what we like about friends, isn't it? Our friends know our journey. They know our past and our present. They're predicting our future. And so when something comes our way, a new wind, a new flood, a new joy, a new sunshine, they know how to interpret that in our lives in the context of all the journey that's gone before and our friends, they get our uncensored questions, don't they? Our yet-to-be-reasoned opinions. Our friends grant us a chance to make our grand, embarrassing, contradictory pronouncements about the world. They get the very best of who we are. Our friends get the very worst of who we are. Our friends get our rough drafts. And over time, they help us edit our lives on the journey. Emerson wrote, make yourself necessary to someone. Is there someone for whom you are that friend? I ask you to imagine your friends. Is there someone who imagined you when I posed the question? In a chaotic world, friendship is the most elegant, most lasting way to be useful. 
We, each of us, we are a testament to our friend's compassion and tolerance and humor and wisdom and patience and grit. Friendship is the only thing capable of showing us the enormousness of this world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw last week that Koheleth, the preacher, looks at life and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. There's really nothing new under the sun. And yet even this one who had been so negative made the interesting observation that two are better than one and in fact three can rarely ever be broken when they stand together. Solomon's insight that two are, are better than one because they have, he says, a good return for their labor. Two individuals working together can always accomplish more than two workers independently of each other. In fact, Henry Ford is credited with that discovery that changed modern industry that you can achieve more by putting a, a group of people together to create, to produce something than you can by having a bunch of individuals working on the whole all by themselves. Could you imagine for a moment if you yourself had to build the entirety of a car? If you had to know everything about the engine, the molding of the body, if you had to make the tires, how long would it take just to learn how to, to fold and form a tire? Why? Working together, Henry Ford discovered, and now we know that in minutes, not hours, a car can be put together in minutes, and yet if any one of us had to do it starting from scratch from the beginning to the end, a whole lifetime would not probably be long enough to construct one automobile. During a hike in the woods, a troop of Boy Scouts came across an abandoned section of the rail, and each of the boys tried to walk a section of the rail. Inevitably, they would fall off or, or stumble off the rail, and no one could do it. And two boys huddled together, and they whispered for a long while, and they bet the other crew their best part of their lunch that they could walk the entirety of the rail and not fall off. Oh, we sure can't. No one's been able to do it, the other boys chimed. The two boys each got on one rail, held hands in the center, and balanced each other all the way, walking the entirety of the section of the rail. Isn't that the picture of Christian friendship? Holding hands and walking on the narrow rails of life. Well, Solomon makes three observations. If two fall, one will lift up his friend. Look at verse 10. Two are better than one, verse 9. They have a good return for their labor, first of all, because if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. A friend is somebody we can lean on when we're weak. He's strong when you cannot be strong. He is steadfast when you find yourself wavering. When the burden in life is too much for you to bear, a friend comes alongside and says, let me help you carry the load that you bear today. Most specifically, Solomon, the preacher, Kohela says, when you fall, if you're by yourself, you're on the ground, if there's another one to lift you up, Two works better than one. 
I remember I was in junior high school. I was in seventh grade. My brother, Brian, who, by the way, before I tell the story, is the best big brother on planet Earth, but not this occasion in the ninth grade. Let's just put it that way. We sat, we were going skiing. I had never skied. Now, at seventh grade's kind of old to start skiing if you haven't skied, but, and I was lanky and long, and my brother had skied. He'd been on the youth mission, uh, the youth ski trip before, and we shared a bedroom. We had the twin beds kind of there in the room together, and every night we talked about how to ski, what's it like to ski. He was kind of getting me ready to ski, and so when we got there, I had envisioned he was going to do all the things we'd talked about together. Well, when we got there, he was in ninth grade, and some 11th grade boys invited him to run with them. So his seventh grade kid brother, who was on the bunny slopes, was the last place that he wanted to be. Do you remember the first time you ever put on ski boots? I mean, all of a sudden, you're just locked in a position like this, and then they hand you, they way oversized me. I was in seventh grade. They gave me some skis that were about six feet long and four inches wide, and I was struggling, and it was an icy day, and, uh, you know, I got to the top, you know, by the grace of God, and then I just, I, I didn't have a lesson, didn't have anybody tell me what to do. It was just, away we go. Well, after that first run, I was sorry that I had skied that day, and everyone on the bunny slope was sorry that I had skied that day. I wiped out everybody in my midst, and then on that first run, I realized that there's something worse than having on two skis, and that is having on one ski. One came off, you, you remember those icy conditions and you can't get it to latch back in and well it was awkward and they were six feet long and I couldn't get the ski that was off on or the one that was on off. I would have gone either way, didn't matter at that point, I just couldn't do it and then I saw my brother coming down, he'd started higher, he, it ends you know on the bunny slope at the end and I shouted, Brian, Brian, I thought the one had come who would lift me up and either take one off or put one on and why he ran away at like he didn't hear a word or cry of his brother wallering with me in the ice for most of the morning was not his idea of skiing that day when one is alone and one doesn't have one to lift him up he will wallow in the ice and misery solomon says Two are better than one. John Anderson worked in the coal mines in southern Illinois. It was a hard life in the 19th century. Now picture this. For months during the short days of the year, he would go down into the coal mines before the sun arose, and he would come out after the sun set. So for months, he never saw the sun. That was the way life was in the coal mines in that century. Well, like most miners, he and his family owed their life and their whole future to the company store. You work for the company, but you bought from the company, and in the end, the company seemed to win every time. And he and his wife had a dream to move west and to build a homestead, to have a log cabin, to live in the daylight and to work not in the bowels of the earth, but to work the earth and grow the crops. His wife took in washing and ironing, and finally they paid off the company store, and it was time to go. So John kissed his wife and his young son goodbye, 
and he took a train to Merrill, Wisconsin. He got off the train. He had to walk 25 miles to claim his free track of 40 acres. On his back, he had 50 pounds of meal, an axe, and a few essentials to go to Ormsby, Illinois. It was July, the mosquitoes were thick, and the flies were biting. Right there in the closed tight woods, the humidity was unbearable, and he was strong and tough, and to make ends meet, he decided not to buy any gloves, but besides, he thought the, the pick of the coal mining would he already had the calluses in his hand, but the axe hit his hand in a different place, and he had bleeding blisters, and day by day, it got worse, and he began to miss his wife and his son. The second day, all the more unbearable. The woods began to ring with the sounds of his curses. He wasn't ordinarily a profane man, but he'd wondered why he'd ever had a silly dream and why he ever thought he could do it. And by the third day, he was just down on his back there on the floor of the woods. Somehow amongst the whirl of insects, he heard another sound. He began to hear the clinging of another man's axe. Could it be he leaned forward? Was anybody else? And as he began to hear the motion and the movement and the rhythm of another man's axe, John decided he could do it too. And John Anderson got up and he began to fell those trees like he were falling them the very first day. And he finished the log cabin and brought back his wife and his son. Years later in that log cabin, he gathered his children and his grandchildren around and he told them the story that in his moment of distress, that the sound of another man's axe had saved his life. We're encouraged by the presence of each other, aren't we? Two are better than one. Well, he gives us another reason. Two are better than one because they lie down together, they stay warm. Notice what he says in verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Now, my grandfather says of growing up, there were so many boys in the family, you know, back in the days when everybody worked the farm and you had at least a dozen siblings that in order to get everybody in the bed, they didn't they didn't lie in the bed the way that you and I lie in the bed. They went crossways across the bed on those really cold nights. Now, this is hard for those of us with central heat and air to imagine, but on those really cold Carolina nights, you hope that you got a middle spot in that bed and had brothers lined up on both sides because then you would be warm all night long unless somebody wet the bed and then... Uh, <laughs> He said that one would get beat up and thrown out of the bed by his brothers. It's not just physical warmth, is it? Life with others is lived in warmth. And there's a third reason. When you face your enemy, he says, and if one can overpower him, verse 12, who is alone, two can resist him, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You know, the reality of church is this. We try to bring your children up in the faith in a community. 
And when they go to junior high, even elementary now, and high school, when they are tempted to do things that they should not be doing, they can look over and see another First Baptist kid and know we have the same values. We follow the same Jesus. We can stand together with each other in a way that the child would never be able to stand alone. Are you building community for your children? Who'd you think of when I said think of your best friend? Who thought of you when I said think of your best friend? Proverbs 18 says, and I think quite prophetically, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In fact, if you notice this in obituaries more and more, you have the predeceased by, survived by, and in the survived by, they'll list the family, and now more and more I'm seeing the names of special friends. In fact, it happened this week at a funeral I did, and the two friends who are like family are, and those names are being included more and more because they mean so much to us, our friends. There is a friend who is closer than our brother. I think prophetically, the sage is saying that Jesus is coming. And then how can we forget the words of our Lord in John 15, 13? No greater love hath any man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus is that ultimate friend, the friend who is closer than her brother, the friend who is willing to lay down his life for you. There is no greater picture of love than this, Jesus tells his friends, that I am willing to die for you. What kind of friends do you have? Maybe more importantly, what kind of friend are you? The one who takes or the one who gives? The one who picks up, the one who keeps warm? The one who's there, not just when your pal's in the limousine, but when the limousine is broken down and they're taking the bus? Are you there for your friend then? I can't tell you how many times I've watched someone suffer in life and they always come around to saying, well, at least I found out. You could finish this sentence, couldn't you? At least I found out who my real friends are. Are you a real friend? Let us pray. Oh God, such words from the wise one. He looked at life and he had noticed that those who try to do it alone will never make it. Maybe there's someone here today, oh God, who would say, I need to be Jesus' friend. I need to let his death be my death and his resurrection be my resurrection. And even today, I proclaim him as my Lord and Savior. I'm forgiven of my sins 
by the shed blood of my Jesus, my friend. Maybe there are others who need to come and be a part of this community, have their families, their kids in this community, because the wisest man ever to live has noticed when God's people stand together, they're not easily broken, but one by one they can be snapped like a dry twig. God, thank you for being our friend. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.